Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, a brand new guest talking about their, their background and their journey through the world of martial arts and, and other stuff they're involved in. My, my guest this week is a high-energy and charismatic podcaster, speaker, number one best-selling author, and international top-rated course creator with over 1,000 students in 51 countries. He's been in coaching and facilitator roles for over 25 years. He's quickly becoming one of the most sought-after podcast consultants and content creators in the industry. Featured in Podcast Magazine, he's the editor-in-chief of the PodFest Messenger Newsletter and regularly participates in industry panels, speaks at special events, and even appears on other podcasts. Lucky for us. So other than that, he's also a martial artist. So I'm looking forward to talking to this gentleman. I've been friends with him online for a while and never actually got to chat before today in person. So please welcome to the show my guest today, Mr. Larry Roberts. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great, Brian. Thank you so much for having me here, man. This is cool. I'm, I'm excited. So kind of like we do with all my guests, let's go back to the beginning. Where, where did that first spark come from? What led to that initial interest in martial arts? Kind of like what age you were and how did that start? Um, I would say it was single digits. I would definitely say it was single digits. Uh, and I think it was probably inspired by ninjas. <laughs> nice. Honestly, I was born in 72, so I'm right there in that probably 10-year-old range when ninjas were all the rage here in the States. You had the ninja movies, and you had ninja theater on Saturdays, and there was just ninja craze was everywhere back in the early 80s. And, man, how cool is that? They're like superheroes, but they're karate guys, too. Of course, I didn't know they weren't karate guys at the time. I didn't know that ninjas had their own style. Yep. Uh, but I, I, I got to go with that. I got to say it was ninjas that got me involved. So do you ever remember, did you ever buy, um, uh, issues of Ninja Magazine. Do you remember when that was a thing? There's some in my <laughs> attic right now. I'm nice. not kidding. I, I actually have some issues of Ninja Magazine in my attic, along with Stephen K. Hayes, Ninja 1 through nice. Ninja 4, and I have a couple of his other books up there as well, as well as uh, Ashita Kim and his books. Now, that takes us down a whole different path there if we start talking about Ashita Kim. But <laughs> but at the time, I didn't know any better. You know, I, I just loved Monkey Steals the Peach. I thought, oh, that looks like that's going to work. That's a great looking technique. So I'm going to try that someday. That's crazy. I, I don't know if I have any issue. I have to dig through. I know I have the oldest issue I could find a black belt when I was digging through boxes. I think I had one from like 87. And it wow. actually had, had Chuck Norris on the back advertising the Levi's stretched jeans for martial arts. His action jeans. <laughs> yes. That's right, man. Yeah, with a gusseted crotch. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> man. So do you, do, you, do you remember the first ninja movie you saw? I got to ask that. It's it's got to be ninja, just ninja one, the, okay. the very first ninja. That would be the quote unquote ninja movie. Now, of course, I know I saw tons of what they called ninja theater. It used to come on here locally from a Dallas local station. Every Saturday was ninja theater, but they weren't really ninjas. It was more of a kung fu theater that they had labeled as ninja theater. So 
there was plenty of that that I had absorbed. But yeah, the first ninja movie would have been Ninja. It okay. Just, it, oh no no no! It was it was called Enter the Ninja. That's what it was. Oh, yes. Enter the Ninja. That, That's what it was. That that, that was uh, Shokasugi, right? That was Shokasugi's yes. big debut. Yes, yes. Love that movie. I, I honestly think I'm trying to think. I think the first one I saw. Because I know I saw one of the sequels. I want to see it might have been Ninja 3, The Domination. It's my uh, favorite, dude. Yes. I own it right now. <laughs> Not, I, I haven't seen that in probably 30 years. I need to watch that again. But I know I saw that one. Then I went back and watched all the others. And But I think my first experience with Ninja ever was probably the TV show The Master. Oh, yeah, with dude. A, I used to watch that with my grandma. Yeah. No lie, dude. Yes. I love that show. Yep. Yes, with Lee Van Cleef. Yes, and Tim- Timothy Van Patten or, yeah, was, the, was the, the young guy he was training. I actually have the uh, pilot episode on DVD with Demi Moore in it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. For real? I Demi compl- Moore? I forgot she was in that. I found that in, like, the $3 bin at Walmart once. I'm like, you've got to be. And my wife's like, why are you so excited? I'm like, you just don't understand. <laughs> That is amazing. I would have bought it too. I'd probably frame it to be honest with you, because Shokasugi's in that as well. Yep, he is. Yeah, I still watch it. I'll pull it out, and my, my kids are like, "Why?" Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the best, man. That's this right. is why. Because it's the best. I wish I could find the whole series. I've, tr- I've been trying to find that and Sidekicks. If I could find both of those on DVD, I'd be a happy man. That is too funny. Sidekicks just became available on Amazon Prime, I think. The series, really? Oh no, 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 not the series, the oh, movie. No, I'm no, sorry, not, not the Chuck Norris movie. movie, the series with Ernie Reyes Jr. If you remember I that, oh wow! It, so it was a it was a Disney. So I'm hoping it'll show up on Disney Plus. There was it was a um, it started as a movie called The Last Electric Night, and then it turned into a series because it, the movie was, but it was Ernie Reyes Jr. and Gil Gerard were in it. Wow, together. Gil Gerard played a cop. And it was like friends with Ernie Ray Jr.'s grandfather, and the grandfather died. I am so, so, starting yeah. to put that back together yeah. right now so that Gil, you're talking yeah. about. Gil Gerard took him in and raised him, and it would always would be this like eight, nine year old kid helping him solve crimes and stuff. Because Gil, Gil Gerard, he was Buck Rogers, right? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I'm starting to put this back together now. It's coming to me a little bit. You can watch it need... on YouTube, but that's not the best quality. But it, of course it is not. out there. No. <laughs> uh, the tracking's probably off or something, right? A little, little bit. That's so awesome. <laughs> that's great. So, yeah. so I, so I got to ask then, what, when did the first lessons start? After getting the ninja craze, what was the, what was the first lessons? And was it did it take your parents convincing? And what age did you actually start studying martial arts? Oh, man. It definitely took my parents convincing. And let's just back it up just a little bit because my okay. my parents were never supportive of my martial arts endeavors at all. Okay, they they had never went to one of my fights. They've never been anywhere in regards to me and uh, and someone going at it a little bit. Wow, I was born with a birth defect and I was born with an inverted sternum, so my chest was concave as compared to convex. And by the time I reached about four and a half years old, it had gotten to the point where. I had labored breathing, my heart was having a hard time beating, yada, 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 Mm -hmm. and I was going to literally die. So I had to have surgery between the ages of four and five, and let's see, it's a uh, sternum excavatus is what it's actually called. So they go in and they... They they break your sternum in a multiple in multiple places, do some sawing, do some remaneuvering, and then they put you back together so that now your chest is is uh, convex like it normally would, so that my lungs can now expand and my heart can beat regularly and all my organs can do what my organs are supposed to do. So I had life saving surgery at about four and a half years old, and I was always super super sheltered because of that, uh, because I mean any injury to my chest at the time could have led to death. And so they put me in private school and I was always really pampered and really frail and just this, the, the real, 
uh, super soft type kid. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I hated it. I hated being the super soft kid. I wanted to be the superhero. You know, even there's a picture of me today that when I was four years old, I'm sitting there wearing a Batman T-shirt. So I was always a Batman fan. I'm a Batman fan to this day, and I'm 49 years old. That's never going to change. Nice. But I always wanted to be that that super tough human male, you know, A-type personality kind of guy. And that's why I think I fell in love with ninjas so much is because – I mean, they can whoop everybody, you know, and they're, they're one person and they got all these cool skills and all these cool techniques that allow them to be quote unquote superhuman, but they're just people that train. And if I trained and trained and trained, I would be a ninja too. So, <laughs> nice. but again, it wasn't supported by the parents at all in any way, shape, fashion, or form. Okay. But uh, I was probably, man, I was early teens. And of course, there's a, Sign up here to win a free week of karate, probably at Pizza Hut or someplace. And, of course, I filled it out. And now that I know it's just a lead generation box, everybody wins. Uh, I, <laughs> I won me a free week of karate. So mom reluctantly allowed me to go and take this week of karate. And it was amazing. It was the most amazing week of my life. Uh, and I, I loved it. I got my free little gi and uh, just had a ball with it. However... Uh, the rents wouldn't show up and uh, they wouldn't pay for it. So they, they weren't going to finance me uh, pursuing my, my violent endeavors. <laughs> so um, I, I, I trained as much as I could with locals in the area uh, just whenever I would get a chance, uh, meaning that I would fight a lot. And uh, <laughs> I would watch ninja movies, and then I would go down to the mall, and there was a there was a store in the mall that was called Rebirth Leather. It was a leather store, but they had a ninja section. So nice. uh, I would I would occasionally buy that ninja star that I wasn't supposed to have, or I'd buy that bowkin that I wasn't supposed to have, or those nunchucks, and it, it goes on and on. My I can't remember what they were called, but the hand claws that ninjas used to climb, climb trees. trees yep. Yeah, yeah. So of course I had me a pair of those and just all sorts of ninja things and then i would run off in the woods and train so <laughs> so that was my early on training but i didn't start uh, really training until my late teens and I, I eventually got to where grandma would pay for it and uh, i started taking karate at a small local school i don't even remember the name of the school or who the instructor was okay. because it wasn't that big of a deal to me at the time it was big but i mean i wasn't I wasn't obsessed with the school like mm -hmm. I thought I would be because I also had basketball and I had my job and I had my girlfriend. And at that age, chasing girls was a little more important to me than, than chasing black belts at the time. So that didn't last very long. But once I graduated high school, I started training at a, at a school called West Academy that was owned by John West. And he was six Dan Mutaquan Taekwondo oh, okay. and third Dan American uh, Kempo Karate. And I started training there, and I trained there for years and years. And he had a student by the name of Phil Berthoff, and Phil was more focused on the Kenpo, and I fell in love with Kenpo. And Phil was also a third Dan in, in American Kenpo, and he started his own school there in the area. So I kind of jumped ship a little bit. So okay. I jumped ship, and I went over to Phil's school. And under Phil Berthoff, I eventually earned my second-degree black belt in American Kenpo. So what was it about American Kempo? What drew you to it you know, com you know, compared to the uh, traditional Taekwondo you were training in at the other school? What, what, what was it that kind of made you want to jump ship? 
it was the 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 well, you know kind of like phone booth fighting. I love the self defense techniques that you see in Kempo and the perpetual motion that Kempo brings to the forefront. You know where the the linear strike ends, a circular strike begins, and you have the universal pattern that all Kempo practitioners are aware of. Uh, it's it's that it was that in close and just changing from weapon to weapon to weapon and the flow of the techniques that I really really loved and maybe. It's because, I mean, Kenpo, when you're doing the self-defense techniques, looks a whole lot like the quote-unquote ninja movies. <laughs> yep. Because you're, you're setting everything up. Each shot sets up the next shot and the next shot and the next shot. It's kind of like, uh, I think it was Skip Hancock. Uh, he, he's, uh, I don't know what his rank is today, but it, probably around 8th Dan in yeah, American eighth Kenpo. 8th I believe, yeah. Yeah, he came and did a seminar, and, and he, and actually Phil Berthoff was affiliated with Kenpo 2000 uh, eventually. And which was Skip Hancock's organization. I don't even know if it's still around or if it's been renamed. I'm sure it's probably been renamed by now. But Skip Hancock made it as though it was playing pool where you, you, you shoot one shot and you use that shot to set up the next shot and the next shot and the next shot. And although I didn't have that understanding at the time, that's what I loved about it. It was just that flow and just that constant mo- motion and that constant movement that uh, that really drew me into uh, the Kempo realm. And that's what I fell in love with and become obsessed with. So it's kind of funny, you, you, just to back up a little bit, you mentioned going into that, that leather store and buying, you know, like nunchucks and throwing stars and stuff. It, it, just thinking about that now, you know, cause I'm you know, two years younger than you. So we grew up around the same, same time frame. The fact that you could, as a young kid at that age could go in, I mean, we had a local <laughs> sporting goods store that I do as a fifth grader went in and bought my first throwing star. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and nowadays you, you couldn't even get through the front door. <laughs> no, it's too funny because I live in Louisville, Texas now, and there's a mall here that we pass passed by when I was a kid and we stopped at this mall. I think we went to some field trip to, I don't know, probably Six Flags uh, amusement park or something. And we're coming back and we stopped at this mall to shop. I bought a ninja sword. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) On a school trip. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I come back on the bus and I'm holding a sword. Like, what did you buy? I, well, I bought a sword. (laughs) Like, Okay, <laughs> so that would be so, like, you're, yeah. you're walking back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's how it was back then. I mean, you you still had that. They'd sell anything to anybody. They didn't care. Yeah, I think that sporting goods store we had ninja stars. They had butterfly knives. They had throwing knives. They had swords. It was like if I would have had yep. more money, I would have bought everything they sold. <laughs> it's so funny, and I could grab it right now. It's sitting here in my studio. I still have a bowkin that I bought from Rebirth Leather. It's it, we used to use it as the doorstop for our sliding back door back. <laughs> in the day and it's sitting right over there in the corner i, I don't have the square guard because it's a ninja bokin it's straight it doesn't have the the, the curve of the traditional katana type bokin okay. but it's a ninja bokin so it's painted black nice. and it had a it had a had a four by four square guard now like i say the guard's gone but i still have the 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 main shaft of the of the bokin so that's awesome <laughs> so so now the the the, the Murakwan Taekwondo. Now how long did you study there? Did you gain what what rank did you get to in Taekwondo? Uh first degree black belt in, oh, in Murakwan. So, so I did get, I did then. get ranked. Yeah, I was there for quite some time and uh it was I man I had a way back then too of and it 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 it, it actually led to almost the fall of my whole martial arts training. My my ego was really really <laughs> really out of whack back then. And, um, yeah, it just, I let it get the better of me. I started thinking I was bigger than I was and better than I was and better than I was. And 
Yeah, it was very, very ego driven because and and I'm not making excuses here. It was a horrible way to be. And mm-hmm. and we'll even get into it more here in a bit, but it was so empowering to go from the fragile little kid up to still pretty fragile in all honesty. I mean, even when I was competing, I was competing I'm six foot three and I weighed a buck fifty five. So oh, okay. still pretty skinny. Yeah. But for a skinny guy I was I was doing all right. And uh, yeah, it just kind of got to my head. So of course I destroyed relationships along the way. And uh, I regret the fact that to this day, I still never really reconciled with Mr. West. Uh, we, oh we did a little bit because, well, there was some family drama too, and I picked the wrong side. So, uh, his son ended up coming into the school and his son, I think was fourth Dan at the time. And Michael and I were very, very close in age. And so even even though I went to Phil's school, I was still training with Michael on the side as well because Michael was more into the actual fighting styles. You know, like me, you know, for, for those that aren't martial artists, you don't really understand the difference between fighting and traditional martial arts. Mm-hmm. They're concepts that we get from TMA that are applied to actual fighting, but these techniques that you're going to be using on like in kata and in your forms, however you want to call them. Uh, aren't necessarily translated directly to kickboxing or various styles of MMA. I know we can get into a massive debate here as to whether or not TMA is applicable in MMA. I mean, we see Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and 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 um, I can't think of his name uh, from Brazil. What's his name? Uh, doesn't even matter because I can't think of his name right now. <laughs> but <laughs> but we we've seen TMA transition into MMA and work effectively and mm-hmm. fighting. Uh, translates pretty well sometimes, but uh, it was two different concepts by back then because this was in the early 90s, and we didn't really have an understanding of MMA at the time or what transitioned where into real fighting. But his son was really focused on fighting and, and really fighting and being young and dumb and the macho guy that I was at the time. I decided that that was something that I wanted to pursue as well. So I, I got away from Mr. West and went with Mr. West Jr., Michael West, and. So that caused a rift there because there was some family dynamics there that were in play. So anyways, bottom line, destroyed that relationship and never had the opportunity really to reconcile. Although apologies were made, they were never really acted on. So uh, okay. I do have that regret to this day. But where were we going with that? I don't know. But yes, I did get to, to black belt level in Mudaquan Taekwondo, uh, but kept pursuing Kenpo. Kenpo was my passion. Okay. So, so now you had mentioned before you all, you played basketball and stuff. So was the competition part of martial arts just natural or was that something you weren't sure about at first or was it something you always wanted to get into was the competing part? I just wanted to be able to fight. I wanted to be tough and, and I shouldn't admit this, but that's just how it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to be a tough guy. Uh, I wanted to be the guy that everybody went, Oh, don't mess with him. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was, that was my justification for life at the time. Uh, it was I had an abusive childhood, even though I was supposed to be fragile. You know, dad smacked everybody around, including mom on the regs. So my thing was, I just wanted to be tough enough that nobody was going to smack me around. Okay. And uh, I wanted to be the smacker and not the smacky. <laughs> so, <laughs> Makes sense. So, uh, and I'm not saying that that's the proper way to be in any way. I'm not justifying that at all. It was just a confusing time. And that's what led to a lot of the problems that I had, because now I'm suddenly somewhat empowered 
and I quit everything. Martial arts was life. That's uh, that was mm-hmm. it. I lived at the gym, and it didn't matter at the time what gym it was, whether it was Mr. West Gym or Michael West Gym or whether it was Phil Berthoff's gym. It didn't matter. That was it. Training was life. I had a dojo at the house. Uh, I was married at the time. Uh, I had at least one child at, at, at the start, and I had two children before that marriage uh, abruptly ended. But the whole time, it was just martial arts. Everything was martial arts. I go home, it's martial arts. I go to the gym, it's martial arts. I, wow. I would, I would, I would just live at the gym. That, that was it for years and years and years. And it again didn't matter which gym it was. And we haven't even gotten to the gym that I eventually called home. So. <laughs> So at those first few schools you were at, did you do any teaching while you were there? I did some teaching, especially at, at West Academy uh, under Mr. West. Uh, did some of the early, I think I started teaching, man, I think it was maybe a purple belt. And okay. I started teaching some of the, the new new folks that would come in. Uh, and teaching just became part of the regimen. And I taught from then on, regardless of where I was at. Uh, I was usually in some sort of instructor slash leadership role, not saying I was supposed to be there, uh, but <laughs> somehow I'm, I managed to, uh, to, to be there. So yeah, teaching was always part of it. Okay. And then you said you went, went to another, now, was there any more, you said the gym you eventually called home, was there anything else in between there or where did you finally end up? No, I finally ended up with Rick Arnold out of Sherman, Texas. He had the quintessential karate school. And if you wanted to be really cool, but it was a traditional, it was a, it was a uh, Taekwondo school. Okay. Uh, and it eventually evolved into an American karate school, which it is today. But that was the school. That's where all the, that, that's almost like, almost like Cobra Kai, but, but good guys. They always had a good reputation, but it was just the school to be at if you wanted to be one of the tough guys. And everybody okay. around town knew that if you were really into karate, you were really good at karate, you trained under Mr. Arnold. And uh, eventually, the opportunity presented itself for me to go because again, we're going back into the fighting aspects of things. That's how I even got into Rick Arnold school was, uh, I thought I wanted to kickbox and, uh, somehow I don't even know how I got invited to train with his fight team one night. And, uh, this is the, the fight team at Mr. Arnold's at the time, always trained after all the classes were over. So class would end at nine o'clock and the fight team would start training at nine. And again, somehow I got an invite there. I don't remember exactly how. I probably went in and initiated some conversation with Mr. Arnold, and he invited me in. And uh, it was going pretty good. <laughs> it was going all right until my buddy to this day, he's still one of my best friends of the world, Chad Witcher. He wasn't one of my friends at the time, just some guy I knew, but he was a heavyweight. And uh, man, he hit me with a spin kick right behind my ear that sent me into another dimension. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they said I just fell like a you know like a tree, and uh, he KO'd me that night. So, <laughs> uh, and I don't know that it was intentional. I I I to this I I think it was to a degree because <laughs> because I know eventually I started training with the fight team, and I know we would we would green light guys that come in and think they're tough. And I'm sure I walked in and thought I was tough. And so I'm pretty confident that the light was green for them to go a little bit harder than they probably should have. But, uh, but yeah, he, uh, he gave me a reality check and I realized that although, uh, man, I thought I was tough and I thought I was cool. And even at the time I was already breaking concrete and breaking bricks. And so I'm thinking I'm, ah, I'm the man. And, uh, Chad hit me with a reality check really, really quick. But, uh, I went back and 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 I I knew that I wanted to learn how to fight. And that's how it started. I started training at Mr. Arnold's with the fight team 
and uh, took plenty of uh, plenty of beatings on my, on my way there, but eventually made it to the fight team. And uh, all of my competition, as, as far as kickboxing goes, fell under Mr. Arnold. And uh, I eventually went nine and zero as a kickboxer under his tutelage. Nice. And uh, yeah, it was it was great. And then MMA hit the scene. You know what? November of '93, I think it was, mm-hmm. was the first UFC. And man, that was. That was a life changer there, wasn't it? Yeah. So uh, Sherman, Texas, didn't have a lot of BJJ or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at the time. So we were buying uh, Gracie in action and the Gracie beginner series. I think it was a five VHS series that I invested in. And at the time, there was also a website called submissionfighter.com, which has now evolved into mixedmartialarts.com. Uh, but they had what they called the fighter's notebook that they had put together. And the owners there had put together, it was 350, 400 pages. I've got it digitized now of, of a manual you could buy. It came in a big three ring binder and it was black and white photos of these two guys going through various mixed martial arts techniques at the time. And most of it was BJJ oriented. There was a little bit of striking, but a lot of it was drills and a lot of it was technique. And we sat there and we just absorbed the fighter's notebook. And we would literally go into one of our backyards. It was some of us from the fight team. And we'd get together either in the afternoons or uh, on the weekends. And we would put down a tarp that we bought from Walmart, make sure there was no rocks underneath it. And we would just go (laughs) at it. And that, that was how we started training MMA. We would just literally go at it. Never would do that today, no. but <laughs> no. wow. But we it was it was nuts. It was kind of uh, have you heard, have you heard of the Dog Brothers? Yes, you know they're uh, Kali and Eskrima Dog Brothers. They do real stick fighting. It was it was very Dog Brothers esque in that okay. we would we would just we would just go at it. We would go at each other and uh, full backyard MMA type fights. But we were all friends, and it wasn't. It was competitive, but it wasn't. You know, there wasn't any kind of. It wasn't like Kimbo Slice type thing. You know, mm-hmm. it was just <laughs> just friends training, and we would go real hard and try to see what works and what doesn't work. And things started evolving. And uh, shoot, now today Sherman, Texas, where I'm from, is is got you know a couple of BJJ schools up there with some really really good competitors. But we didn't have it at the time, so we just had to piece part it together. That's kind of funny. You mentioned the the Gracie videos. I think my first video to try to learn groundwork was Marco Huas. I had ordered uh, his video series. I remember him from the early USCs, the King of the Streets from Brazil. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah I, yeah, I probably still have a few of those VHS on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> That's so amazing because I can still, as I sit here right now, I still remember exactly where I was at at UFC 7 when Marco Huas was fighting Paul the Polar Bear Varlins. Yes. And the pay-per-view cut off in the middle of the main event. Oh, that pissed me off. <laughs> we were calling the cable company after hours oh. line, just swearing. It was like, it's not our fault. They only paid for this so many bad. hours. Exactly. The, the three-hour time limit or four-hour yep. time limit was up, and it was over. And I was like, no! I think it was the next <laughs> afternoon we finally got to see the, the rest of it. I'm like, that's that's too long to wait. <laughs> Yep, yep. That's hilarious. Yeah, I still remember that. But I loved Marco Huas. He was like my favorite fighter. After that fight, he became my number one favorite fighter. And it's funny you mentioned VHS. I have a closet that's it's basically a linen closet that has VHSs that are stacked double uh, double tall and double deep. Of I had all of the UFCs up through. Man, I I got up into the the mid 100s oh, wow. when I was and I was still recording all of the UFCs. But I had IFC and then I had. Uh, what was the one in, in, in Brazil that was, well, Marco Huas would fight down there. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, I can't remember. Sergio, Sergio B- B- Batelli, I think, was the promoter. Yeah, yeah I know what uh, you're talking about. There was some uh, IVC or something like that. But anyways, yep. uh, oh, it was Valley Tudo. That's Valley what it was. Yes. It was. Yes. It was Valley Tudo. And uh, so I had those on VHS, everything. I mean, I had everything you can possibly imagine as far as the VHS collection. Hundreds of VHSs that were fights. I mean, it was... That's really, I mean, I was obsessed with traditional martial arts, Mm -hmm. but when UFC hit, it just escalated. And along with the escalation of my obsession, the escalation of the ego came back as well. Yeah. And so, I mean, the ego is the story in all of this. It it was always my downfall. And uh, I wish I could do things differently back then. But, uh, you know, eventually my ego got too big, even for America's best. Uh, when, when you're the fragile kid and now suddenly you're, you're, you're going, you know, four and oh, five and oh, six and oh, you think you're on top of the world and you think you're just crushing everybody. And, and I didn't handle it well. Okay. And, uh, eventually was removed from the school. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Arnold called me one day and he goes, Hey, uh, uh, been doing some thinking and you're going to go ahead and need to leave your key behind the mat, at, uh, you know, under the mat at the back door. And he goes, you can either leave it for me or uh, you can meet me at four and, and I'll take it from you. Wow. <laughs> and I went, it'll be under the mat. So, because, <laughs> uh, you know, no matter how big my head was, I always knew that he, you know, he was always just amazing. He's still amazing to this day. Yeah. But thankfully, in that regard, he and I, after several years of me doing some soul searching and realizing that I was uh, not the best person in the world, actually one of the worst people or we, worst types of people in the world. Uh, and changing that, we were able to reconcile. And now I've done some work for him. I've called some of his fights. I've uh, announced some of his tournaments, and and we have a good relationship again. So I'm pretty excited about that. Very cool. That's good. So did you ever actually step into the cage and, and do MMA fighting? I did. Didn't have quite the success that I had as a kickboxer. Okay. Uh, ground game was 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 lacking a bit. Uh, I went two and three as a MMA or submission guy. Yeah, just my ground game. I mean, I, I was choked out every time. Okay. It was either I, I got guillotined and and uh, and triangle choked twice. So always got choked. That big old long skinny neck of mine was <laughs> always easy to find. So was and, that but, amateur or pro? That was amateur, okay. and I, I did one pro. Okay, but um, I remember my first fight was against a, a guy from the school from with Guy Mesger and Trey Telegman. Oh yeah, he was he was from the Lions Den. And uh, at the time, do you remember Pancrase or Pancration, yep. the organization back then? Well, I knew Guy Mesger, king of Pancrase, knew Guy Mesger had fought in the UFC, and I knew he was based in Dallas, but I'd never had the opportunity to train with him before this. And I show up, and there's my guy, and there are two of my idols, Guy Mesger and Trey Telegman. And they're at the weigh-ins with their guy, who is the guy that I'm fighting. So I instantly panic. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God. God, I'm going up against this guy. This is, there's no way I can, these are the real, these are, these, this is real. <laughs> and so I managed to make it through the weigh-ins that the day before. And we get back the next day and here he is. He's standing across the ring from me, guy on one side, Trey on the other. And they're standing on the ring apron and he's wearing real pancration shin guards and, and, and foot guards. Right. And I'm like, I looked at my coach, Eric, Eric Loveless, who he was, uh, he was involved with Rick Arnold school as well. Uh, but he was more of the MMA kind of guy. He was more of the MMA coach than Rick really was. So Eric was there cornering me, and I look over and I go, man, he's got like on real gear and everything, and I'm sitting here in Nike shorts, and you know, <laughs> no, I'm I'm not even geared for this. So, anyways, bottom line was I lost that fight before it even started. 
the bell rings and we have a nice exchange on the feet, which the, you know, on the feet, I'm fine. I'm, yeah. I'm good to go there. But then it got on the ground and I'm completely lost. I had no idea. And I can remember being in his guard and I, I hear guy talk about pass his arm, pass his arm. And then he goes, all right, put the leg over. All right. Triangle, triangle. He goes, pull his head down, pull his head down. And he's talking about pulling my head down. And I'm like, why is he pulling my, oh, and I'm telling Oh, that's why he pulled my head down. I got you. Okay, cool. But yeah, I still remember Guy Mesker coaching him every step of the way, every move. And, you know, Eric's over there like, hey, kick his ass. Kick his ass, Larry. <laughs> Can I get something a little bit deeper than kick his ass? Can I get a real technique, maybe something that I should do? So, uh. See, I'm trying to remember. I, I want to say Guy Metzger was involved in that. Maybe as a coach on that that. Uh, Chuck Norris World Combat League. Do you remember that? He one? was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. That's one. That was a great idea. And I wish it would have stuck because I, yeah. I thought it was really cool to watch. <laughs> I came real close to fighting in that organization. Really? It just did not come to fruition. My friend Pete Spratt, uh, Pete actually fought in, in the World Combat League and he, or the World Combat Championships. Is that what it was? Yeah, it was WCL, uh, World Combat League. What World Combat League, yeah. Yep. So he fought in that organization. And then, of course, he actually made it to the UFC as well. Pete and I. We came up through the ranks together. We all we started training karate essentially together. We don't even remember when we don't know each other. Uh, but Pete's a real athlete, and I was just a real egomaniac. And uh, he managed to leverage his athleticism and made it to the big show. Matter of fact, just last week, uh, he signed his first student to the UFC. Oh, so nice. he's he's still training, yeah. Very cool. Uh, they fought on ESPN Plus, and Dana White's looking for a fight. And if he won the fight, he made it. He got his contract, and sure enough, he got his contract. So Very cool. I was really, really, really happy for Pete there. Nice. So I'm kind of curious, thinking back to that that first school when you started teaching, you said, I think you said as a purple belt or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, now in your your, your career, you, you teach, you coach people. What do you think's changed about your teaching style over the years, and how do you think your martial arts training influenced what you do now? My martial arts training influenced everything in that regardless of where I am in my life or what stage of life I was in after the fact, especially after getting kicked out of America's Best, because that was devastating to me. I, and, and I deserved every bit of it. There's no denying that. But it also sent me on a path of reconciling my ability to deal with what could be considered positions of authority or even positions of experience and translating that into actual teaching. When I taught back then, when I was a purple belt teaching, I wasn't teaching to teach. I wasn't teaching to share. I was teaching to boost my ego. I was teaching to, because it made me feel better. It made me feel big. I'm the teacher. So it put me in a position of authority and I relished that. I thought this is the greatest. I am the best. This is, it was all me, 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 me. It's everything I did wasn't for the benefit of anybody that I was doing it for. It was for the benefit of me. And now today at 49 years old with a ton of life lessons between now and then it's the direct opposite. So now I want others to know what I've gone through. I want others to know what I've experienced, regardless of what I am, what I'm facilitating, whether it's whether I'm talking about podcasting or whether I'm talking about martial arts or whether I'm, I'm teaching you how to, how to, I don't know, draw. It, it doesn't matter. Now I do it from a place of humility and providing value to that person that I'm training in whatever it may be. So the philosophies are night and day. They're completely yin and yang. If you want to keep with the, with, with the theme there, uh, it's, it's just totally opposite. So martial arts gave me confidence and it also gave me arrogance that in the end gave me humility. 
it's an interesting journey, but it took every bit of it to put me where I'm at today. So when did they, when did your writing start? I know you, you've written a, a lot of articles and stuff and been published numerous times. Kind of when, when did that start for you? Was that something you were, had ever done before? I had never really done it before. Everything that I've written is is podcast or branding related. Okay. Uh, all everything that I've published with my book is on podcasting. Articles that I've written are all about podcasting, uh, and and maybe not podcasting specific, but they're in podcasting periodicals. Right. And it's more of uh, you know I use some of the lessons that I learned from martial arts uh, in in presenting my podcasting, the confidence that I have on the mic, the confidence that I have on camera. All of that stems from the lessons that I learned back then, but I didn't start writing until a few years ago. Uh, you know, the, the, the story gets even darker after I got kicked out of the karate school. You know, I continued fighting and training at gyms per se, uh, but I didn't necessarily have any direction. And uh, I eventually signed on to do uh, a fight for a, what was the name of the promotion? Man, I'm drawing blanks this morning. I need caffeine. But I signed on to, I think it was, was it Ring? No, it wasn't Ring of Fire. I can't remember. But anyhow, I signed on for a promotion. And uh, I was training at the time with Pete Spratt and some others. And uh, we went down to Houston to train with Saul Solis, who recently passed away from COVID. Uh, Saul Solis at the time trained the likes of Tito Ortiz and Rico Rodriguez and Eve Edwards and all of the names and champions from the earlier years of the UFC. Uh, Saul had some aspect of, of their career. And I'm down there one day and I'm rolling with Eve Edwards and rolling for those uninitiated, just doing jujitsu or wrestling per se. Uh, and I'm rolling with Eve's and Saul walks by and he goes, Hey bro, your cardio is a little suspect. <laughs> and that just destroyed me. Oh, wow. You go, what? How does this, that sentence go, your cardio is a little suspect, destroy you? Well, I knew that my cardio was suspect. My cardio, well, even after my surgery, my cardio was always suspect. It was always my failing. Even though I went 9-0 as a kickboxer, had those fights gone, some of them especially, gone one more round, I probably would have gotten knocked out. Um, I've only got 60% lung capacity of the normal individual because my lungs were deformed. I have my lungs that go up above my clavicle. It's freaking crazy when you see the x-ray and they're real narrow and tubular and they go down almost into my hips. And that's because they developed so awkwardly in those early developmental stages that they were deformed the whole time and it left me with, with lung capacity issues. Um, so saw walking by and I was really stepping up. I was stepping my game up way up in competition and it was a, it was a pro fight and it was an organization out of Louisiana. Matter of fact, it was supposed to be the card that Pete Spratt fought Rich Clemente on and Pete won his first world title uh, by beating Rich Clemente at that event. And I was supposed to be on that card, but what ended up happening when Saul walked by and said that was I emotionally and mentally collapsed and uh, I pulled out of the fight. I got quote unquote sick. So here's the tough guy. Here's the egomaniac. Here's the guy that's on top of the world, has a coach that uh, he respects beyond respect. Just really, I mean, I held him in such a super, super high regard. Uh, and then he says something like that. And I knew in my heart of hearts that I'm chasing a pipe dream here. This is never going to work. I'm never going to make it to the UFC. I'm never going to be a real professional fighter. It's just not going to happen. No matter how hard I train, no matter what I do, no matter what I eat, no matter what I take, because there might have been some time in there where I might have been taking a little extra, uh, some supplements, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, to try to extend my athleticism. 
and uh, it just didn't matter at the time. And again, I pulled out, I got quote unquote sick and I didn't fight the next night, but you'll still see me cage side coaching Pete. <laughs> so, so I was too sick to fight, but I was right on there. I'm right there. Cage side working his corner. So I wasn't that sick. Uh, but I was sick because I was crushed. Uh, you know, I, I, I knew emotionally and I broke. And to this day, I regret not fighting, e- even though I probably would have got my ass kicked. It would have been the first time I got my back, my backside smacked around. Mm-hmm. It was, it was the reality check that that one sentence set in. And again, I just broke completely emotionally and, and mentally. And from that point on, I really quit training because it, it seemed like everything I was doing was for naught. And I started partying and I started just hanging out at the club and doing all kinds of things that I didn't do in my early twenties. This is my late twenties now. And it eventually led to a a point where I was, uh, I became an alcoholic and it really, really took over and destroyed my life. Uh, ended up in rehab. It's been seven years now since I've been out of rehab, but that 10, 12 year progression there uh, maybe it was longer, 10 to 12 to 15 years uh, progression there of alcoholism and partying and not doing anything worth a crap really with my life. Uh, granted, I had a great career going. I Even through rehab, I had a career going. Uh, they supported me through all that, so that was great. I know I'm all over the place here, <laughs> but I'm trying to, trying to piece it all together. Um, but I quit training martial arts, became an alcoholic, once I got out of rehab, I knew I needed something in my life and podcasting was there. And that's how I got into podcasting and podcasting gave me that creative direction. It gave me that ability to communicate and my outlook was completely different on all aspects of life. And so I started writing, I started creating content and it's evolved to where it's at today. Wow. So you mentioned it. So let's give a little plug. Just t- uh, talk about your podcast a little bit. Yeah. My podcast is called readily random and it started off, it's evolved as well. It's kind of interesting because all journeys start with one thing in mind and who knows where it's going to take us and how it's going to evolve along the way. But when I started readily random, it was initially to be a celebration or a story of those that had gone through maybe something similar to rehab. Maybe they had their own addictions that they've overcome. Maybe they've had lifestyle choices that, that, that they regret, maybe whatever, but they found themselves on the other side and they're wanting to share these stories to help other people along their paths as well. Uh, but it actually ended up being a little bit too raw, a little bit too much for me. Okay. And so it ended up evolving into an entrepreneurial podcast. And it's been an entrepreneurial podcast now for probably two years. And that's what we do today. I have entrepreneurs that come on and tell their stories, how they got started, how they found success doing what they're doing, and what are some of the tips and techniques that they can share with the audience that they can apply to their own businesses and continue moving forward in their entrepreneurial journeys as well. Nice. Well, I will definitely put links for your your podcast and your website and everything in the show notes to, to send people that way. I know I've listened to a few episodes and I, I am a subscriber, so. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I, I try, I, that's pretty much, I, I as my last guest, I was just talking to before you, uh, we're both former radio guys, and I was saying I, I just, I don't listen to radio anymore. I don't, I used to love local radio and radio, local radio has gone downhill. I pretty much, all I listen to is podcasts when I'm driving in my car, so. It's like, yeah, podcasts I, are where I, I it's at. I subscribe to like a hundred of them. I think I don't get. I, I don't listen to every episode of everyone I've subscribed to, but sure. I listen to a buttload of podcasts now. <laughs> yeah, I've only got a handful that I listen to regularly. Yep. Um, but but I don't miss those that I do listen to regularly, and I listen to others as well. It just it varies. I'm one of those guys that I really don't even listen. Uh, I listen to my car occasionally, mm-hmm. uh, but I generally listen to podcasts on YouTube. 
Oh, okay. And I, I, or now that Joe Rogan moved over to Spotify, I occasionally watch Joe Rogan over there. I, I haven't been a big follower since he moved to Spotify. Uh, but occasionally I'll check him out. But I primarily like to, quote, unquote, watch my podcasts. And if I'm working or something, I'll have one, I'll have a window pulled up and I'll have a podcast playing in the background, depending on what I'm doing. And then if the conversation gets, I don't know, heated or whether it gets just, if there's something there where I go, oh man, I probably need to check this out. You know, I'll tab over and I'll watch the conversation take place. And I'm a different kind of consumer for podcasts, which is kind of interesting, but but yeah, that's my favorite way to do it. Yeah, I'm almost strictly audio. I, I very rarely will watch a podcast. It's almost always audio. So do it at the gym when I'm working out. Do it when you know at work, you know, my full time job and whatever. Yeah, it's usually got a, a headphone on at least one in one of my ears and listening to a podcast. So. It's funny because I still get in trouble because I call video podcasts. I call them podcasts, and some of the <laughs> some of the old school podcast gods that's they podcast. frown upon that. That is not a podcast. It doesn't have an RSS feed. It's not a podcast. But yeah, I've planted my flag and I say it is a podcast. There you go. So (laughs) let's let's say someone approaches you and they're, uh, I'm thinking of getting involved in martial arts. What, what what are some tips you give them? What, what to look for in a school, what to look for an instructor and maybe some things to, to avoid. Man, that's a tough one. Uh, Some of the things, because again, my perception has changed so much these days as to what I would look for in a school. I don't know that I personally could go back to a TMA school. I don't know that I could personally go back to a Kenpo school even, even though I love Kenpo karate. And in my studio, you can kind of see it behind me right there at my thumb tip is my black belt. It's blurry because my camera's got that Boca background on it, but I still have my background, my, my black belt in the background of my podcast studio. Uh, so I love it, but I don't know that I would recommend anyone go to it. So I, I would recommend finding some place that teaches a mix that teaches, uh, I'd send them to an MMA gym. I would all, all day. You know, there are okay. some MMA gyms here in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex that I highly respect that are open, that are more so open to public than, than professional fighters. Uh, and, and I'd probably send them someplace like that, someplace where they could establish a relationship with the instructor and get something a little more personal out of it. Uh, I, I think that if I had not had the personal relationships, even though I did everything I could to destroy them uh, with my instructors, I wouldn't have found the success that I did find in martial arts. It wouldn't have had the impact on me that it did have on me overall. And I know I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I carry with me to this day had I not had those personal relationships with my instructors. So that would be one of the things that I, I would really in, uh, infer that they look for. Uh, look for for a school where you feel comfortable. Look for a gym that's personable. Look for someplace where you're not just another gi on the mat and running up their counts for the month. I mean, that, that would be the biggest thing. Just, just you want someplace that feels like home. You want to walk into the place and everybody greets you accordingly. You want to walk into the place and feel comfortable. You want to, when you're on the mat, regardless of what you're training, whether it's kickboxing or whether it's a a taekwondo or whatever it may be, you want to feel comfortable in the fact that you can go in there and you can be you. You can release your uniqueness and be who you really are while you're training. And if you find that comfort level, if you find that level of reception and you find a place that you can call home, then that's where you want to be. Nice. So now usually at this point in the podcast is where I ask my guests, because a lot of my guests are traditional backgrounds. I usually ask them their thoughts on MMA. You obviously are an MMA fan. You've, you've fought MMA. So the question I want to ask you is, what are your thoughts as someone who's been around the MMA world for a long time? What are your thoughts on, on weight cutting in MMA and the kind of the, the controversy about that? 
Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I, I hate weight cutting. I, I hated it back in the day because, I mean, it wasn't as prevalent as it is now when I was competing, but it yep. was still around, uh, and, and fighters were still doing it. But uh, there, I understand it to a certain degree, mm-hmm. and I think weight cutting should be permitted within a certain limit. You know, I don't know what that limit should be, but when you've got people that are walking around at 240 and they're cutting down to 185 to yeah. compete, that's just nonsense to me. And even back in the day, Eve Edwards used to cut about 18 to 22 pounds per fight. And I'm like, man, how do you do that for starters? And how is that legal? So even back in the day when it was important to me, I still never really bought into it. I never really liked the concept of cutting massive amounts of weight. 10, 12 pounds, yeah, sure, drop down a weight class and then put it back on. Um, but again, 30, 40 pounds, like some of these fighters are doing that are just dehydrating themselves. And I mean, people are dying from it. There yeah. are literally fighters dying yep. from doing it. Uh, that's, that's, that's a level of ridiculousness that should be regulated to some degree. See, the worst part for me is the fact that let's say you're going to fight at 185, you walk around at 205, you cut to 185. And then over the next 24 hours, you put that weight back on. So you're actually fighting at 205. So why not just fight at 205? That's yeah, the part that yeah. never made sense to me. Just have them fight at their walk around weight. It makes yeah, and perfect I sense. Would, <laughs> I would totally support same day weigh-ins. I, I'd be all over it. If they were taking votes, I would vote for same day weigh-ins and, uh, and, and take it from that perspective. I think that, that 24 hours that they have to rehydrate using IVs and going to the hospital yeah. and doing vitamin drips and doing everything they can to, to get back in tip-top shape so that they can fight the next day, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's extremely dangerous from a variety of perspectives, not just from the, the cutting the weight perspective, but now you have fighters in there, and we see it from time to time. We see fighters that are competing in the same quote-unquote weight class One's obviously much, much larger than the yep. other. Yeah. And th- that's dangerous, folks. We're, we're dealing with people that are, lives are literally on the line. People have died in MMA fights, never died in the UFC. Right. The UFC does not have any deaths on the record. But there are some, some other promotions, especially there's a Russian promotion that I'm thinking of specifically that has had fighters die in the cage. And that's not something that we want to experience. No. You know, that's not something that you ever want to happen in any sport. Granted, some of the guys that are proponents of, of weight cutting go, oh, people, you've had deaths in the NFL, you've had deaths here. Okay, but that doesn't make it right. <laughs> exactly. You know, we don't want to put ourselves in a position to where we justify death. Yeah. We want to make it as safe as possible for the fighters. You know, it, it leads me down to, to thinking of the coaches and the managers of these fighters. You know, who are they putting them up against? And do they really care about their fighters? Or do they just really care about those paychecks that they're getting from the fighters? Uh, I think a lot of it leans more towards option B there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think it's something that definitely needs to be done. It's legalized cheating, in yeah, my opinion. I so. agree with you 100%. So, so thinking back of all your years in martial arts, if you had to pick one martial artist to put at the top of your list for someone you truly admire, whether it's someone you've actually met and trained with or just uh, a lot of people pick like a movie person that got them interested, just if you had to put one at the top of your list for someone you truly admire, who would it be? Still to this day, and I'm lucky enough to be friends with him on Facebook, had a massive influence on me as a child, is Stephen K. Hayes. Nice. Uh, Stephen K. Hayes is, uh, you know, he's a ninjutsu practitioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to this day, he, he actually just retired. He turned his JoJo over to his top student, and he just made that transition, I want to say, a month, a month or so ago. Oh, wow. Um, but he's still involved to a certain degree, and they're having their big uh, yearly event right now. But Stephen K. Hayes, I mean, I can remember listening to his audiobooks back in the day, <laughs> and I had him on cassette, 
and he just influenced so much uh, of with me getting started. And if it wasn't for him and the books that he wrote and the contributions that he made and his training in Japan and bringing Tagakiru Ninjutsu over to the States and everything that he did there, uh, man, I don't know that uh, it would have been the same. So Stephen K. Hayes, even though I've never had the opportunity to meet him or talk to him, he would definitely be my number one biggest influence ever. That's awesome. I actually do have a request in to get him on my show, so fingers crossed. <laughs> I will definitely be listening. Very cool. <laughs> so then, in, in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy that stands out for you that you've learned? I think the number one is humility. Uh, it's 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 balancing that power. You know, this sounds so cheesy, but it's so true, man. You know, you think mm-hmm. back to, to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Yep. And that responsibility in martial arts covers so much. It's not just when you're, if you're fighting someone and you, you, you have the ability to do something, you don't do it necessarily. Sure, that's an aspect of it. But the responsibility is, is carrying that weight with you in a way that provides value to those around you, that provides support to those around you, that helps those around you. That power isn't there to help you beat everybody up. Or go to the club with your little chest puffed out, hoping somebody starts something. That's not what that power is all about. It's completely opposite of that. And granted, it took a long time for me to learn that. But that is the biggest takeaway. That It's, it's everything in my life now. It's how I function every day. And it all comes from going through all those experiences, making all those mistakes, taking all those whoopings <laughs> coming up <laughs> through the ranks. And, and getting those reality checks by the instructors at the time. I know I was difficult. I know I was extremely, I was always difficult. I was a difficult child. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that's it, man. Just that humility and understanding that the, the direction that it can take you and it's your responsibility to make sure that you take it uh, in a direction that helps others. That's, nice. that's it, man. That's a great answer. So favorite martial arts book? Ooh, favorite martial arts book. Uh, the tale of Jeet Kune Do was, was always huge. Of yep. course, uh, that was a massive one. Um, but for some reason, Ninja four by Stephen K Hayes, that one, for some reason is, is popping out to me. I don't know if I, uh, for some reason worshiped that one more than the others, but, <laughs> but, uh, that entire series was, was so big for me. And, uh, I can still remember reading through his Ninja series and then, you know, running out and ninjing it up, <laughs> you know, throwing my grappling hook up in the tree and trying to scale the trees and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But it was, it's, it's still, that was the foundation for everything, man, was, was Stephen Hayes and his books. That was what just kept me just right there, just salivating over martial arts. And, uh, though that series along with the tale of Jeet Kune Do are probably my biggest. Wonderful. So now you grew up in the eighties like me, so I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer for this one. Hopefully you'll have a good one. Favorite martial arts video game. Oh, um, Karate Champ. Oh, nice. Yeah, Karate Champ. That would definitely be it with the two joysticks and the yep. various joysticks directions uh, designated which techniques you're doing. So Karate Champ would be it, man. Very cool. All right. Favorite martial arts TV show? Oh, man. Martial arts TV show. Uh, you know, the master's way up there, way yep. up there. Yep. Uh, and and I think just because we said the master earlier, that's really all that's coming to mind right now. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think, man. Uh, I mean, Walker, Texas Ranger was huge too. Yep. Can we call that a martial arts show? Oh, I mean, I was got Chuck Norris. Of course it's a yeah, martial arts show. Yeah. I mean, so on. I was lucky enough to be in an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger as an extra. So really? 
that yeah, it was That's fun. Cool. It was uh, the Sons of Thunder when oh, when yeah. that whole whole I, thing was going down. I was excited for that spinoff, and I'm sad it never happened. I, I loved those characters that they were going to spin off a whole series on that. It, it yeah, was, uh, Jamie Jamie Wilsek, I believe, was one of the one of the guys that played one of those guys. Yeah. Okay, such a good show. I miss that. Yeah. <laughs> They uh, they were filming here in Dallas, which they did a lot. Yeah. And uh, I, at the time, I was training for I was fight training. I think I was still at Mr. Arnold's school full time, but we would train at a gym called Trainers Elite down here in Dallas with Ron Van Browning, and that's where you would run into guys like Guy Mesger on the mat and Trey Tillman and Alex Andrade and Oleg Toktarov was there from time to time as well. Nice. And uh, they filmed at Ron's school, so we got the invite to come down and be extras and. Uh, you can see me in a dirty black gi standing on the edge of the ring, cheering on the bad guy as he tries to whoop. I can't remember the Sons of Thunder main guy, whatever his name was, that kid. Uh, but they were fighting there in the school, and we were cheering against him. So That's awesome. I'll have to go back and watch that episode now. <laughs> it, got, it got my interest peaked. <laughs> you you could catch me just, just a very little snippet for about, a, I don't know, maybe a second or two at the edge of the ring there. I'm on the back wall cheering along and banging on the mat. So That's cool. Awesome. <laughs> All right, final question favorite martial arts movie oh man gosh that is such a tough one but <laughs> i'll go i'll go pray for death i'll Ooh. go pray for death with shokasugi okay. nice. uh it, it's a ninja movie of course and it starts off with a traditional japanese ninja scene where there's ninjas coming out of the woods everywhere and the the main ninjas you know whooping everybody up and it's awesome um, but he then moves to the States and opens up, a uh, like, a an, an uh, Japanese museum of sorts, like a doll museum of some sort. And some drug smugglers end up using some of those dolls to smuggle cocaine and they whack his family and, uh, he uh, gets beat up, but he goes before this is over, you will pray for death. And he tells that to the bad guy. And then he has this really cool ninja helmet. That's really kind of out there. It's a steel helmet. That's got the steel face guard. And of course, by the end, he will everybody and the guy's on his way to being destroyed and he goes and he's praying for death kill me kill me kill me so yeah he prays for death so pray for death was my favorite one that's awesome cool well larry i just want to thank you man this has been a lot i learned a lot about you i didn't know and and uh, reinforce some more stuff i didn't know and it's just it's such a such a fun time chatting with you today any last minute stuff you want to leave us with and like i said i will put links for all your stuff in the show notes to make sure everyone can check out what you're doing no i appreciate it man this has been great and i again i apologize i know i was all over the place trying to piece everything together but i'm a little scattered this morning i'm normally more on point so i apologize for that but hey i tell you what if you want to start a podcast if you would head over to podcastboost.com where i help you launch your podcast with a purpose uh, we'll sit down, we'll we'll figure out exactly who your audience is and what your brand is, and then we will set out a list of goals for your podcast, and together we will launch your podcast and help you reach your audience. So that's what we do there. Uh, other than that, yeah, Readily Random, please visit readilyrandom.com, listen to the podcast, subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. And uh, again, Brian, thank you so much. Perfect, man. Great way to end it. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.